What is the best news that you have ever heard? I know it's a, it's a very general question, but consider, consider um, maybe go back to a time when you were told something that just filled your heart with joy. If you are a child here with us, the best news you have ever heard might be that you're opening up your Christmas presents a day earlier, December 24th, because December 25th falls on a Sunday, and we got to go to church. So we can't open our presents on the 25th. You are opening up your presents a day earlier. Praise the Lord. If you're a high school senior here, maybe, the best news you have heard Maybe that you got accepted into a college that you've been thinking and praying for and just uh, dreaming about attending. Maybe if you're a college senior here, the best news you've heard might be that you landed that dream job that you were working so hard towards. If you're a young couple here, maybe the best news you've ever heard was that you're having a child and you just cannot wait for the time. Right, that you will welcome that baby boy or baby girl to your home, to your family. Maybe you're an older person here and you've been walking with the Lord for a very long time and you've been praying for your children and finally your wayward son or daughter came to the Lord and you are just so excited and filled with gratitude and joy. All of us can think of a time when we heard news that we believed and that we were filled with lots of emotions and great gratitude. With that, I want us to turn to Luke chapter 2. I want us to consider this great news that all of us know. It's not news in that sense. What we will be reading is not new for us. We have been, those who have been walking with the Lord for many years, we heard this Every time we open up the beginning of Gospels, we hear of this great news that today there has been born for you a Savior. Even those of you who here are not believers, you know this news. We are well acquainted with the story of Christmas as recorded by all Gospels, but mostly with Luke. Luke chapter 2. What is the Christmas story all about? What is the Christmas story all about? And before we read, I just want to give you this big idea that we will be looking at here this morning. Christmas is a story of a big God who came as a humble Savior for the little, the common, and the fearful. Christmas is a story of a big God who came as a humble Savior for us who are little, common and fearful we usually read the passage in its entirety before we get into it but this morning i want to switch things up a little bit and read scene by scene as we look at these verses i want us to look at three implications from the story that luke records for us in luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 20 and the first implication is this little people like us must remember that we serve a big God. Little people like us must remember that we serve a big God. Let's read, beginning with verse 1 of Luke chapter 2. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus 
that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Most of us who have been exposed to the reading and the study of Scripture are aware that the sovereign God of all the ages has a plan which he began to unfold before the world was. From Genesis 1 and continues to unfold here until all the prophecies of Revelation are fulfilled. When you look at the 66 books recorded in this Bible, every little story that is given to us is a small piece of a big, grand story of God, the story of redemption. All the way back in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, some 700 years before the events that Luke records for us here in Luke chapter 2, God spoke through prophet Micah that this Messiah, this Jesus, the Lord, will be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 2, verse, chapter 5, verse 2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now, 700 years before, God said that this Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, but where do we find Joseph and Mary who's with the child? Luke tells us in verse 4 that they're in Galilee, they're in Nazareth. Nazareth is 80 to 90 miles away from Bethlehem. That's a far trek, considering that people back then would normally travel on foot. And for a good, healthy male um, with good road conditions, it would require about four days to get to or to travel 80 miles or so. And considering that Mary was almost due, it would have been a tough going for both Mary and Joseph. So naturally, Joseph would probably, considering his family conditions, considering his wife, they would stay in Nazareth. That was the safe thing to do. That was the right thing to do. In fact, for, for you families, right, if, if your wife was ever pregnant and um, right around seven, eight, nine months, if you were to travel, some doctors would advise you not to. It would be an unsafe thing to do. But they're there. They pick up. Joseph goes up, verse 4 says. Joseph also went up to Galilee. They pick up and leave. Why? Because of the census. We're told in verse 1, look at verse 1 again, that Caesar Augustus, he issues a decree, a, a dogma, a command for the entire world to be registered for the purpose of taxation. This census not only affected the Romans in the Roman Empire, but all the Jews who while living in the promised land were not free. They were under Roman rule. They were under pagans. 
and they too had to obey this command. You know, the information here that Luke gives us in the first three verses of Luke chapter 2 is of very little interest to readers today. We know these verses because they're part of Christmas story. But in all honesty, it's like, who cares who Caesar Augustus was, right? And, and why would I do any digging into finding out who Quirinius, the governor of Syria, was and whether he was an actual person or not? Like, for us today, good stuff, Luke. Let's move on to verse 7 and 8. That's where the meaty stuff comes in, right? But I will remind to you that Luke originally did not write this gospel to us, people who were in, right, who live in 2022. He wrote this gospel to, according to chapter 1, Theophilus. Theophilus. And he wrote it in order to defend Christianity. And in defending Christianity, Luke was showing to Theophilus that our Christian faith is not a myth but truth that is rooted in history, which can be validated by extra-biblical sources. And that is very important for us to consider. The birth of Christ, Christmas as we celebrate, is rooted in history. It is not a made-up tale. Who is Caesar Augustus? Caesar Augustus was born as Gaius Octavius. He went by this title, Augustus, because it meant esteemed or revered or, or highly honored. Caesar, the highly honored one. And so this highest authority, the one who is honored, the one who is revered, he puts out a decree, not just for one small city or a region or a nation, but the entire known world to go in and to register because you guys have taxes to pay. And the entire world gets up and starts moving around. And in verse 3, Luke tells us that everyone was on his way to register to this census, for this census, no exceptions. Luke also adds in verse 2 that this took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. This verse here, Luke 2.2, is one of the most disputed verses, certainly in Luke, but also in the entire New Testament volumes have been written in order to harmonize this verse here, this reference to a historical Quirinius with all the other extra biblical evidence that is found there. Did this guy even exist? Did Luke get his history right? And so you can do all this homework. You can literally read for days and months about all the information that's, uh, that's out there that historians, biblical historians, try to sort of compile these sources and to prove that Luke was, in fact, true. But we're not going to get into all of this at this point. We can be sure that Theophilus, friends, who was the original recipient, knew of this man, Quirinius, the governor of Syria. And that is why Luke mentions him here. Luke drops these names because they were relevant, not necessarily to us here, but to the original reader. But here's even a bigger point. Behind all these big names stands an even bigger God. Behind the esteemed, the revered Caesar stands one who moves all the events of history in order to accomplish his story. 
Caesar Augustus falls, friends, into a long line of kings and rulers who were used by God in order to advance not their purposes, but his purpose. Do you remember Pharaoh? Consider Pharaoh. Exodus 9, 16, God says, For this reason I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. And later on in Romans 9.17, Paul quoting this, he says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. Think about this great king Pharaoh. Why? God says, I raised you up, that I could demonstrate to you that it is not your power, but it is my power. I am more powerful. Do you remember Cyrus, the king of Persia? He, he too issued a decree recorded in Ezra chapter 1. Why did he issue this decree? We are told in Ezra 1 that God stirred him up in order to allow, to issue this decree, to allow the Jews to leave their captivity in Babylon and to return to the promised land to rebuild the temple. God was accomplishing his greater purpose. And unbeknownst to all of these leaders, they are used by God to advance his kingdom rather than their own. You see, friends, it was God. It was God, too, here in Luke chapter 2, too, who puts this thought into Augustus to issue a decree. A decree, not just general decree, but more specifically for each family to go to their own place, their father's place, their own city. And it was no accident that Joseph was from Bethlehem, the very city where Jesus had to be born. So God, friends, consider this. He moves an entire world, entire empire, just to move one couple to Bethlehem. Moves the entire world in order to get one couple to where they need to be in order that they may give birth where Christ was prophesied that he would be born 700 years before. Don't miss this, friends. The kings of the nations are very tiny. They're very small. They're not the main players on the world stage. All of us here are very tiny, we are very small, but we serve a big God. He is much bigger, he is much greater, he is highly esteemed than even Caesar Augustus. And if God moved the entire empire in order to accomplish his purpose and to bless his people, remember the goal of moving them from Nazareth to Bethlehem is to bless his people. If God did that back then, then he is still working among the nations. God is still working among the people today to accomplish and to bless his people still. You know, I don't know where you are this morning and how this principle, how this implication, right, uh, could encourage you. I'm sure you're thinking of an application. And I know by the Spirit, the Lord is applying this truth right now but I want you to be encouraged. His birth account reminds us, first of all, that little as we may be, 
we serve a big God who guides all the world events to unpack his plan as we see, first of all, in Luke chapter 2, 1 through 5. The question that comes up is what is his plan? What is it that God revealing? At this particular junction, we find out, at the fullness of time, right, what Paul writes in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, who came, friends, not as a reigning monarch, not as a king, but as a humble savior. So first, little people like us must remember that we serve a big God. And second, I want you to see that common people like us must remember that we have access to a humble savior. Common people like us must remember that we have access to a humble Savior. Look with me at verse 6. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her son, firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I don't know about you, but considering the point that I just made, if God is so big that he can move nations in order to take one family away from Nazareth and move him to Bethlehem because that's where they needed to be, then surely this big God can make sure that there's enough room, right? That there's enough room in the inn for them when they get there. If God is so big, then he can make it happen. Did this detail somehow slip through as God was setting everything in place? Oops, forgot to book a room for you. Moved you to Bethlehem, but sorry. Surely this is not the case. This was no mistake. We all know that he could have done it. He could have reserved a room for them. He could have, right? Jesus could have come as a lofty king and, and monarch, born in a palace. He could have, sure. Just like God could have prevented his son from going hungry in the wilderness, right? He could have. Make bread out of stones. He could have sent angels to rescue Christ in the garden the night before his crucifixion, right? He could have come down from the cross as he was being mocked and, and ridiculed. He could have done all these things. God is powerful enough. He is big enough. But the question we should be asking is not what he could have done, but what did he do and why? What did he do and why? Clearly, friends, as, as we read these verses, it was the will of the Father that his son might enter this physical dimension as a humble savior rather than a mighty king. But why? Consider what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Friends, Jesus is willing to come down from the glories of heaven and to lay in the feeding trough, a manger. Why is he there? Why is he in a manger? Well, because Luke says there was no room for them in verse 7 in the inn. There's no room for them in the inn. Now, what is this inn? What is this inn? We usually think of 
this in as some, you know, um, Bethlehem Motel 6 that you just, you know, come in and knock on the door. Hey, you see a sign vacancy, you book a room and, and you go in, right? Uh, and because of all the commotion that is happening in Bethlehem at this time, I mean, you can imagine people are moving. There's no room for them. And so since there's no room, then they end up in the barn. But Scripture never says that Jesus was born in a barn, and yet all of our nativity scenes, they are staged in barns today. In fact, we were just displaying one earlier today. We have a barn, and we have animals, and we have wise men who actually came much later. But that's, that's what we do. Why? Well, because... This scene here is based probably on today's practice that animals are kept in the barn. And since Jesus was born and laid in the manger, where do you find a manger? A feeding trough. Well, you find it in a barn. And so, okay, Jesus was then born in a barn. Now, when you look at this word that Luke uses in here at the end of verse 7, because there was no room for them in the inn, Yes, it can refer to a place of hospitality like a hotel, but more likely in this context here, friends, remember Joseph, it says he is from Bethlehem, and he probably has family in Bethlehem. And so traveling to Bethlehem, as was the custom, you would probably seek out your family members, and, and you would seek out a shelter from your relatives. And, and more than likely, Joseph stayed in one of the homes there in Bethlehem. Now, what's with this in? Well, Luke uses this same word one more time in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22, verse 11, which translates there not as in, but as guest room. Guest room. Luke twenty-two eleven says this. This is when Jesus instructs his disciples and he says, friends, it's time to eat the Passover dinner. Go find a room for me. He's not sending them to a hotel. He's sending them to find a room. And so he says, as you uh, shall say to the house, to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room, same word, in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples. So the same word can refer both to a guest room and maybe a place of hospitality in someone's home. So what probably happened was when Joseph and Mary came over to the house of their relatives, all of their guest rooms were already full. So they ended up staying probably in the main room, in like a living room in the house where all the family usually were. They were all in one big room, unwalled room. And so usually... In this room, you might find every once in a while animals that spend the night there as well. They would bring them in overnight to protect the animals from the elements, and that is why there is the presence of a manger. So it probably wasn't a barn somewhere in the middle of nowhere, but a home where Mary probably also had assistance from some of the women there who acted like midwives and helped her deliver baby Jesus. But in the end here, we, we don't know all the details of his birth. And that's probably for a purpose we'll get to in a little bit. But friends, we do know this. Jesus came down from heaven to lay in the manger, which was a place that anyone can access. Anyone can come in to this main room. 
Anyone can come through the door and see Jesus. He wasn't born in a palace. Why? So that common people like shepherds and us might have access to him. And by getting to know him by faith, we might be made rich through his resources. He is not poor. He came as a suffering lamb. He came as this humble servant, but he has a lot of riches that you and I benefit from. Friends, the point is you don't need high security clearance. You don't need high qualification. You don't need great wealth. In fact, all of these things often prevent you from seeing the glory of Christ. All of these things, they blind you to see your real need. Friends, we have access to Jesus because he came as a humble Savior, ready to exalt, remember, the humble to feed the hungry and to help the helpless as we studied last week in Luke chapter 1. I want you to also consider this other point. Why was Jesus placed in the manger? And I'm sure this wasn't Luke's main thought or main idea, but probably because it was a cozy crib for, you know, a small infant. But remember here, of all the imagery, right, where are we here in verse 6 and 7? We are in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means what? House of bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. A manger is what? Is a feeding trough. This is where you put food for the animals. And remember that many years later, Jesus would say something like this in John 6, 51. He says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. Friends, Jesus is the bread of life, the kind of breath, bread that will satisfy your deepest hunger. I am the bread of life. And so the picture here, the image here is that they're in Bethlehem, in the, in the house of bread, in this little manger, lays the bread of life. And this bread of life is accessible by anybody, by anybody. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Who has access to this bread of life? Jesus says anyone, whoever, whoever comes and believes. And it's no accident here that Luke brings in both Gentiles, Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, right, and the Jews, both the Roman world and, in fact, the entire world in order to demonstrate that Jesus is not just for Israel. Jesus is for everyone. Friends, rejoice this Christmas morning that we common people have direct access to this humble Savior. One commentator says, if the gospel were some complicated philosophy that required years of graduate school and high IQ to grasp, then those who attained it would boast of their intelligence. If the gospel required sums of money or high social standing to attain, there would be no hope for the poor and lowly. But the beauty of the good news is that even an uneducated, illiterate tribal man in the jungle can understand that he is a sinner and that Jesus Christ is God's Savior. 
and by God's grace, he can believe and be saved. Friends, this is good news for all of us. And those of you who have met Christ, those of you who have faith in Christ, you rejoice this morning that you know him to be your savior. And the question that remains for the rest of you is have you met Christ? Have you come in? We were just singing, right? Come all ye unfaithful, weak, unstable. It's a call for everybody to come and to behold your Savior. Today, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We've seen first that little people like us must remember that we serve a big God And second, common people like us must remember that we have access to a humble Savior. Third, in the rest of this passage, I want us to see in this text that fearful people like us must remember that we possess a joy-inducing, peace-producing gospel. Fearful people like us must remember that we possess a joy-inducing, peace-producing gospel. We now turn to the shepherds in verse 8. Follow along as I read. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. It's very interesting to observe that three different times in the opening chapters of Luke, angels, messengers from God had to tell people not to be afraid. We see it in chapter 1, verse 13. Angel says, do not be afraid, Zacharias. Later on in verse 30, he says, do not be afraid, Mary. And here in chapter 2, verse 10, he had to tell the shepherds, do not be afraid. And the question is why? Because it is natural for sinners to fear, but especially when they come face to face with the messenger from God. It is natural for us to fear. When an angel appeared here, one angel appeared to the shepherds, Luke writes that they were terribly frightened, exceedingly afraid. They were terrified of what happened. Why? Because we read here that they were surrounded. They were all of a sudden surrounded by the glory of God. They were in the very presence of God. And those who experience God's presence, they really quickly become aware of their sinfulness. Do you remember what happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6? Woe is me. Sinful people, friends, have no reason to be confident within themselves when it comes to standing before 
God's holiness, being in God's presence. But immediately, immediately we see the angel here, he announces to them and he proclaims to them the same thing that he proclaimed before, do not fear, do not be afraid. I am here not to announce judgment, but I'm here to deliver a message from God, a message of good news. I bring you, he says, good news. And this is where we get the word gospel. I want to evangelize you is what he is saying. I'm going to proclaim the gospel to you, this great news. And in all three instances that we've mentioned here in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, this, this command, do not be afraid, is then followed up with some form of good news. And here the angel says, I have good news of great joy. And this, this good news is not just for you, but it is for all the people. It is for all the people. This news fills you with joy because today, this very night in the city of David, the city of Bethlehem, city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Messiah Yahweh. Yes, the very one who was promised 700 years and even prior to that, all the way from Genesis that there will come a time when God himself will come and he will live among you. Today is that day. And guess where it's at? Right here in Bethlehem. There has been born for you a Savior. Oh, friends, the angel could have said there has been born for you a judge. He could have. But you see the the fear-shattering, joy-inducing news of Christmas is this. There is born for you a Savior. A Savior. He lived, he died, he rose again for sinners like you and me. One who makes us right with the Holy One. One who makes it possible that we sing this song, no wrath remains for us to bear before God. Just, I don't know if you've considered this, but consider the proportion between how much room, how many words or how many verses or chapters gospel writers devote to the birth of Christ as opposed to his death. Matthew, for instance, devotes seven, eight verses. But really, when it comes to the pronouncement of what happened just five words, and she gave birth to a son. That's it. Mark doesn't say anything at all. John says five words, and the word became flesh. That's it. And here, Luke maybe gives us two chapters, but it's really two verses. One verse in verse 7, and she gave birth to her son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in the manger because there was no room for them in the inn. That's it. That's as much room, as much time that they spent on talking about the details of his birth. But when it comes to his death, they spend chapters. We can say that Matthew 21 through 28, a third of Matthew is devoted to describing the details that lead up to his death and his very death, his crucifixion. A third of Mark, who doesn't mention anything about his birth, is devoted to his death. A quarter of Luke 
is devoted to Christ's death. Nearly half of John, chapters 12 through 20, are devoted to the death of Christ. Why do you think that is? Because Christ's birth, Christ's birth was for him to die. Because there has been born for you, what? A Savior, and there is no salvation without blood. There's no salvation without death. And so from the very proclamation of this great news of Christmas is you have a Savior. And we're going to spend the rest of our time in the Gospels describing what he did. His obedience to the Father, his death, his resurrection, and the fact that now his obedience can be credited to you. Church, in light of this glorious news, where is there room for fear? Instead of fear, there's, there's great joy that they announced and, and peace. He says, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Jesus was prophesied to be the prince of peace in Isaiah 9, 6. He alone gives this peace as a gracious gift by faith and reconciles men to the Father. That's why we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's great news. No more fear. We possess a joy-inducing, peace-producing, good news of salvation. No wonder the angels had to tell him, do not be afraid. Because God, we naturally fear, has given us a Savior. So how do these shepherds respond? Well, in verse 15, we continue to read. And Luke writes, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered, at the things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. You know, it's a long-standing debate when it comes to scripture, of whether or not these shepherds were considered near the bottom of the social ladder or shepherds were simply just normal men doing a normal job. Right? When you look at the New Testament, um, shepherds are always painted in good light, favorable light. And maybe one of the reasons why God chose to announce this good news, first of all, to the shepherds is because he was announcing the good news of a good shepherd that would come to shepherd his sheep. But we can't get into that debate right now. What we do see about these shepherds is their response. As soon as they heard 
this great news that was proclaimed to them, they didn't wait around, right? They said, we shall go right away. Let us go straight to Bethlehem to find Jesus and to tell everyone what we learned of this Messiah, this Jesus, this Lord. And so they went right away to the people. They went not because they were qualified to deliver this message, but because they possessed this great joy, this peace-producing message. Let us go and let us tell. They couldn't do otherwise. And so probably as they went into Bethlehem in that same region, so it was probably somewhere on the outskirts of the town that Jesus was in. They started asking around door by door, and they finally saw the sign. The angel told them, this will be a sign for you. This is how you're going to identify. Of all the newborns that are born this night, this is how you're going to find Jesus. He will be in the manger. And so as soon as they find, they deliver the message. Luke tells us in verse 17 that they made known the statement. What statement? The statement that the angel told them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Because this boy who is laying in the manger is Christ the Lord. And he brings peace to all men. How did they respond? How did the people who hear, who heard this news in verse 18, they all heard and wondered. They wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. They wondered, they were amazed. And this was probably the first indicator of what would be evident throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. Many would be amazed at what Jesus would tell them and what he would do, but they would not believe. They were amazed, but they would not properly respond to Jesus. Did that prevent shepherds from sharing this news? No, not at all. They possessed a great message of hope. And unlike the rest of the people, Mary, look at Mary's response. But Mary treasured the gospel. Mary heard what the shepherds announced to her. And she put what angel told her together with what angel told the shepherds together. And she started to piece the picture. This man is unlike anybody else. Maybe Joseph's family, extended family that's in the house there, they're listening to this and they're like, you got to be kidding me. This here, this one, he is the savior of the world. Mary got it. And although we will see that Mary's probably, she has her own ups and downs throughout Jesus' ministry, right? She and, and his brothers would later on go to Jesus and they would think that he's gone crazy. Hey, come back home, Jesus. Stop doing what you're doing, right? She would have her own ups and downs. Yet, ne nevertheless, she is treasuring these things. Just like she treasured the word of God, scriptures, as we saw last time, just full of the word and is probably making all these connections like, wow, that virgin that Isaiah is that has prophesied of, that's me. That's me. That is just amazing. 
Mary deeply pondered on the gospel as it was declared to her. Beloved, as we wrap up this study here and as we continue to celebrate Christ, Christmas is a story of a big God who came as a humble Savior for the little, for the common, and for the fearful. We have a great message of truth. We possess it, and therefore we ought to go and to proclaim it. Friends, is this news worth believing? Absolutely. Is it worth repeating? Yes. Sunday after Sunday, we come here in order to, what? Hear the gospel message anew. You have a Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. What is the best thing you can learn and know in all the things, all the things that you could choose to learn and to master What is the best thing that you can know and learn? Someone says this, of all the things that I have learned, only two are really worth knowing. The first is that I'm a great sinner, and the second, that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. I mean, when you really boil it down, I know sometimes these statements, they come off as cliches, like, whatever, I know that. But the reality is that that's all we need to know. If you are the most ignorant in the world, but you know these two things, you are the most blessed in the world. Can you imagine that? You are the most blessed. Friends, little people like us, we must remember that we serve a big God. Common people like us must remember that we have access everyday access to a humble savior and fearful people like us must remember that we possess a joy inducing peace producing message that we must share with everyone else friends merry christmas christ is born for you today father we thank you for christ thank you for your son And we thank you for opening up our eyes to believe, to see the beauty of Christ, to see our need for a Savior, Lord. All of us have gone astray, each of us to his own way, but Jesus came and he, Lord, chose the way of obedience. And he's the only one. Let us get this right. He is the only one who chose to fully submit to the will of the Father, and then he died. And he resurrected for us. Oh, may this joy, as we continue to gather today and perhaps this week with our friends and family, may this joy fill fill our hearts. Lord, help us to be assured that he is our Savior and Lord. And to go and to proclaim this truth to anybody who will hear, who has ears to hear. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.